This is No Love in War, a story of Christian nationalism. Written by Valerie H. Hobbs. Read by the author. With original music by Jonathan and Caroline Hodges. Originally published in open access print form by Mayfly Books. Chapter 21 I'm going into this with my eyes open. Romanticism isn't part of my makeup. I asked to court her years ago, not because I was in love with her, but because I respected her. I still respect her, and I'm growing to love her. This is what I need if I need anyone. I think we can get more accomplished together than individually. Gary North, about his wife Sharon, nay Rushdoony, 1979. A doctoral dissertation completed in 2010 by Michael McVicker largely confines the legacy of Arda Rushdoony to a footnote, referring in a single paragraph to the finalizing of her divorce from Roussos in 1959. She citing his extreme cruelty, and her ensuing grievous mental suffering. Likewise in this footnote is a reference to Rushduni's silence on the matter, though McVicker notes Arda's frequent illness, according to some due to an undiagnosed thyroid problem, and her exhaustion early in her marriage during an intense period of missionary work in the Duck Valley Reservation in Owyhee, Nevada a period that Roussos referred to as his harsh and ruthless ministry. And then there is Roussos's 1984 journal entry, which refers to Arda's extensive fornication after the divorce, a collection of words which I've lost no small amount of sleep over, reflecting on all the meaning they carry, all this focus on the physical, on women's bodies and what we do with them, the constant objects of the male gaze. That same year, 2010, McVicker published a summary of Rushduni's life and work for the Chalcedon Foundation, leaving out any reference to Arda. Another of his earlier articles on Roussos's and Arda's time on the reservation, while referring to his wife, likewise omits her name. One reviewer of the published book version of McVicker's dissertation commented that McVicker treats Rushduni's marriages sparingly, since this was the only part of Rushduni's papers to which he was not granted access. McVicker himself is inconsistent about the extent to which he was able to view Rushduni's meticulous records on this particular aspect of his life, referring in one place to his, quote, totally unfettered access to Rushduni's notes, his, quote, unique access, downgrading this to, quote, largely unfettered access 
by page 11. Still, some were asking the hard questions. In 2000, scholar of the classics and former theonomist Dr. Thomas P. Roach published a detailed account of the, quote, theological aberrations and excesses of the movement, including a reference to Arda Rushduni. Roach writes, quote, It is worth noting who the real first MIA is, namely the first Mrs. R.J. Rushduni, who was divorced from the patriarch in 1956. So complete has been her damnatio memoriae that I have no idea what her first name is, whether she is still living, etc. All this despite the fact that she is the birth mother of all five of Rushduni's children, whose apparent loyalty to their great father has meant total exile for their mother. And in 2013, a blogger called Jerry published a short piece about Arda the Invisible, including biographical details about her promising life before marriage, wondering what loneliness she might have experienced in her marriage. Jerry writes, As the father of Christian Reconstructionism and father of the homeschooling movement, Rush Dooney greatly influenced my childhood. I wonder what she would say if she could speak to us about his character and beliefs. Below Jerry's post, one of Arda's daughters replied in the comments section, objecting to the entire line of questioning, arguing that she is rarely mentioned because of that pain and in order not to dishonor her memory. Ah, yes. How often do we see the silencing of a woman's story justified under the guise of protecting her from gossip? Rushduni had been divorced, as one reviewer of McVicker's book put it, but commendably no salacious details of this episode are provided. I've seen women cry when uttering words like these. I just hate to see Christians speaking badly of each other, one elder's wife once said to me, through conscripted pools of tears. How horribly it hurts them so to be required to listen to certain truths spoken so plainly. Others similarly objected below Jerry's post, piling up their praise as protest, writing what a great Christian man Rusos was, so kind and quiet, such a nice man. So many nice men. Would you look at all the nice, nice men? Aren't we so capital P privileged to have such benevolent capital P patriarchs reigning over us? Perhaps because of rising speculation about Rushduni's relationships with women, in 2016, his son Mark published a personal account of Arda's life. In his account of his parents' marriage, he says about his mother that she was very intelligent, well-educated, had some experience in domestic missions, and hoped to be a missionary. She seemed to be a good helpmeet for my father's work. About two weeks after their marriage, my father awoke in the middle of the night 
to find mom struggling to open their third-story window, threatening suicide. Only then did she reveal her family history of mental illness and her fears for her own sanity. Let your eyes pass over this a few times. Look at what comes first, the shining profile of a potential star of biblical womanhood. And then here comes the hinge, preparing the pivot from one extreme to the next. She seemed to be a good helpmeet for my father's work. She seemed. For those of us who suffer still in the ongoing legacy of the Christian kingdom wars, this word seemed carries so much of the weight of women's subordination. All the expectations men pile on us, all the requirements, the assumption embedded in marriage that we as women must sacrifice ourselves at their feet for their work, for their name, for their memory. Arda seemed altogether worthy, but she wasn't as she seemed. Arda seemed suited to support her husband's brilliance, but then she wasn't so suited. Arda seemed willing to set herself aside, but then she didn't. A Christian woman in the 1950s was already expected to carry the weight of her husband's every wish. Imagine, then, a woman with mental illness in that period of history, surely doomed, met with fear and rejection by the general public, facing treatment in wards of state hospitals that were later referred to by those in the know as snake pits. This was a period when electroconvulsive therapy was commonly in use. Along with Arda Rushduni, the writer Sylvia Plath, was among those subjected to this treatment in its crudest form. Some have testified that men doctors were more likely to use this treatment on women, as their minds were not valued as highly as men's. Yet few options exist for women in such circles, except either, one, to accept this degradation, or else two, to mimic the man-mind. This is how some of us have escaped, setting such a head upon our own shoulders, impressing and outdoing all men's calculations, their aggression and their arguments, their cruel and coldly logical dissections of the earth and everything in it. In the end, in this way, so many of us lose ourselves in the service of our liberation. But who can blame us? Long is the list of women minimized and erased, airbrushed out, some replaced in time by women more willing to submit to the long-suffering support their husbands demanded. Arda's story contains many similarities to that of Dorothy Dolly Carey, wife to persistent well-known missionary William Carey. Dorothy, too, followed her husband onto a difficult mission field in 1793, in her case having been coerced by spiritual threats against her soul. And she, too, was later at times confined to an asylum, after suffering many severe and often violent breakdowns in her mental health.
Also like Arda, Dorothy was further brutalized by hateful historical accounts of her life. In his book, The Apostles of India, the Scottish minister of Greyfriars Kirk and moderator of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, James Ogilvy, wrote of Dorothy in 1915 that, while he was not yet twenty years of age, his master had died, and Carey had taken over the business, and had married his late master's sister-in-law, a dull, commonplace young woman named Dolly Plackett. It was a rash step which laid a burden on Carey's life for many years, but of which he never complained. For poor Dolly Plackett, while quite a suitable wife for one who was a country cobbler and nothing more, was deplorably unsuitable as a wife for one who was to be very much more. Her life had been happier had she not married an enthusiast. This cruel version of Dorothy's legacy has persisted. In a 2012 post called Why Ann Judson Didn't Go Crazy Like Dorothy Carey, modern-day missionary and Presbyterian Church in America pastor Carl Dahlfred blamed Dorothy's mental health breakdowns on her lack of faith in God's goodness. How sad such men as William Carey and R.J. Rushdoony are to be yoked to women so beneath their divine devotion, their genius, their enthusiasm, their miraculous manhood. Arda's son Mark wrote that his mom was always at her best when she had a task, and she embraced roles in church and school programs, sport and scout meetings. But as McVicker notes in his book, Arda's, quote, social activities led Rousos to regularly lament the amount of childcare and domestic work he had to do because he believed it impeded his studying and writing. By way of contrast, about Rousos's second wife, Dorothy, whom his children would go on to call mother, Rousos's son Mark wrote in 2017 that when he was not traveling, my father was writing constantly. My mother once chided him for doing menial, time-consuming chores, like watering trees with a garden hose, a waste of his valuable time, she said. We mustn't miss this assertion that ruthlessly diminishes women in communities like these, that a waste of a man's time is the best use of a woman's. After Dorothy's death, a friend would commend her for her emphatic reminder to wives everywhere that when a husband returns home from the battles of life each day, a wife should have him know that as he steps over the threshold, in his house he is Lord. Reading this weaponized woman's words again now, so many other stories come to mind. There was the time I brought some university friends home with me for the weekend, when my pastor had elected to preach again on Abraham's wife Sarah, calling her husband Lord, and so should we all. 
Afterwards, he walked past and shook all my friends' hands, his conscience completely unaffected by the violence of the words he had just stuck like knives in our backs, straight into our hearts. I was ashamed. I was complicit in his hate-filled words lobbed towards my friends. And after that, I never took any friend to church with me again. Then there was the time shortly after Joel, the elder son, got engaged. When he came round to my parents' house, stood in my parents' kitchen, said his fiancée, daughter of another well-known reconstructionist, had agreed to quit her paid job. It's best she learns dependence, and soon, since we don't want her to get used to working, he said. We don't want her to. Yes, these were his exact words. His wife-to-be already swallowed up into the we of the masculine marriage unit, already acting upon the female object her. Her own self already set at odds with the marriage. If you give women an inch, they will claim a mile. They will ascend even unto the hill of the Lord. I was then already married, studying and working as a research assistant in graduate school, living at my parents' house on weekdays as it was closer to campus. I experienced Joel's words as a rebuke though it was likely more of the same utter insensitivity and entitled obliviousness to the context of our conversation. Then there were all the times when various people at various churches have asked me casually when I'd be giving my notice at work, now I was married. And again, now I have children. Oh, but aren't you going part-time? Oh, are you still full-time, even now? Have you thought of quitting? When are you going to give up? Why don't you just quit now and get it all over with? Do you really need to carry on like that? In his account of what he calls the painful years, Mark Rushduni concludes with the affirmation of all but one of his siblings that Arda's mental illness was, in his view, the source of her many problems. But more terrible was the fact, according to him, that she took, quote, refuge in lies about Rousseau's cruelty. Any sensible critic must ask themselves to what extent Mark's opinion of his mother is heavily influenced by the views of his father, who, years after his divorce from Arda, would publicly flesh out his perspective on mental illness writing that, quote, insanity is an evasion of responsibility. Even more, it is a flight from reality. Ironically, Roussos's motivations for writing about this were likely completely unrelated to Arda, rooted instead entirely in self-interest, his own son-in-law Gary North having suggested he was insane. Train up a cold-hearted, self-centered dominionist in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. In all this, though Mark cites multiple documents, he relies most heavily on his father's version of events, his father's point of view, his father's interests. 
He seems never to quote his mother directly, nor mention the details of her complaints against her husband, telling omissions indeed. Nor does Arda's son, her own flesh and blood, fully factor into his thinking the state of psychiatric care in that period, the assumptions about women and their minds, the stigma associated with mental illness. And so, aside from Rousas's notes, summarized in his son's short series of articles documenting the subject of mom's mental illness and the divorce, aside from McVicker's scant comments on all this, very little remains in the public record about Arda, wife to a man who considered family the bedrock of God's kingdom. And in his tribute to his father, written after his death, Mark Rushduni once again erases his mother. This has been No Love in War, a story of Christian nationalism. If you have appreciated this free audiobook and would like to make a donation to the author, please visit this podcast's Spotify site.